Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. All right, anyway, hopefully, we, maybe you can erase your echo. I don't know. You can't erase echoes, I guess, when they record. Anyway, we, can. we can, okay. Not with this one. Oh, great. Well, <laughs> okay. Anyway, welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I hear it. I hear it. It's going to drive them crazy. I don't hear it. You don't hear it? You will when you talk. <laughs> okay, anyway, um, Matt Kressel and I usually run this, but Matt is often the Caribbean or the Bahamas or someplace, Barbados, and is having, I saw blue waters and sun, so I hate Matt. In the meantime, David Mercurio Rivera is helping me, is working with me on this tonight, and um, I, I assume most of, most of you look familiar, you know how it works. We come here for free, and basically all the bar asks for is that you drink something, whether it's alcohol or non-alcohol, it helps keep the bar going and makes it, our, the owner happy or happier. And uh, we have books for sale. Usually we have a bookstore selling the books, but this time we have the authors selling their own books back here. And you can buy them in, we're going to have an intermission, and Ben Laurie has his collection, and Mike Allen has, you have a collection out too? Yes. Okay. All right, so what are you doing? <laughs> okay, all right, the bugs and the, all right. <clears throat> Our first... Oh, before I start, I want to tell you who we're going to have upcoming in the next few months. Uh, March 18th, we've got Lisa Minetti and Caitlin R. Kiernan. April 15th, Ken Liu and James Morrow. May 20th, Wesley Chu and Nicole Kerner-Stace. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, June 17th, Dale Bailey and Simon Strancis. Um, July 15th, David Edison. August 19th, uh, N.K. Jemison and A.C. Wise in September, Lawrence C. Connolly and Thomas F. Monteleone. In October 21st, uh, Fran Wilde and Nathan Ballingrud. And we have a Robert Levy in November, but we don't have who he's going to be with yet. So that's what's coming up. And I'm going to be missing the next two months because I'll be in various places. But I assume Matt will probably recruit you for the next couple of months. Yeah. So our first reader tonight is Ben Laurie. He's the author of the collection Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day, and I believe that's the book you're selling, right? Yes. Okay. He'll sign it to you. In anything you want. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and a picture book for children, The Basketball Player and the Walrus. <clears throat> His fables and tales have been heard on the radio and NPR's This American Life and Selected Shorts, performed by World Theatre in London and Los Angeles and published in The New Yorker, Fairy Tale Review, Weekly Readers Read Magazine, and other places. He lives in Los Angeles, where he's an instructor for the UCLA Extension Writers Program. Please welcome Ben Lurie. All right, so my voice is terrible. Can you hear me at all? 
Is this gonna work? I'm gonna need to be short. Okay. Oh. Well, anyway. Can't be raised. I don't know. No, can't be raised. I'm just gonna lean like this against this thing here. Okay. It's working. Um, so I'm gonna read some new stuff that I'm actually still working on, and I'm gonna start with this story. I hate doing this. I've actually never done this before, but I'm gonna read this off my computer. Um, I wasn't planning on reading this, but then on the plane on the way out, the story just kind of uh, attacked me and wouldn't leave me alone. And so then I got here early and sat across the street and typed it all out. So this is maybe very ill-advised, but, uh, but here we go. So this is a story called Death and the Lady. A lady goes to church one Sunday morning and notices Death sitting beside her in the pew. Oh, Death, she says, very much surprised. Hello, I didn't see you. Hello to you too, miss, Death says with a smile. And what are we praying for today? Well, the usual, says the lady, long life and happiness. Ah, says Death, of course. After a moment, the lady clears her throat. I hope you don't mind, she says, but I'm actually a ma'am. She wiggles her wedding ring. Ah, says Death, lucky man. After the service, the lady gets up to leave. Well, I'll see you later, Death, she says. Indeed, says Death, I certainly hope so. And he smiles and watches her walk away. The next week, the lady returns to church and Death is sitting there again. Hello, Death, says the lady, taking her seat. Good afternoon, ma'am, says Death. Are you all right, the lady says, furrowing her brow. You're looking kind of thin, you know. Working hard, says Death. Just working hard is all. Well, let's get some lunch, the lady says. <laughs> but, says Death, motioning to the service. Oh, don't worry about that, the lady says. She rises from the pew and motions for Death to follow. They have those all the time, she says. <laughs> the lady takes Death to a nearby cafe. They sit at a table and eat bread and sausage. Feel better, says the lady. Oh, yes, says Death. Actually, I do very much. For a moment, the two of them just sit there and smile. Do you have any children, the lady says. Oh, no, says Death. Marriage is not for me. My career has to come first, you know. <laughs> I understand, the lady says with a nod. I have a cousin like that. Wait, I think I have a picture in here. She rummages around in her purse. That's my husband, she says, passing death a photo. And that's my sister and my cousin. And that's my daughter. And those are the twins. Handsome boys, says death. You must be proud. Just then a bell tolls in the distance. Goodness, says the lady, I have to go. We're having a dinner party tonight and I still have so much to do. It's okay, says Death, I hope it goes well. And don't worry, I'll get the bill. Are you sure, says the lady, I had a wonderful time. Absolutely, says Death, I did too. The next week, the lady arrives at church to find Death sitting out front in a convertible. I thought we might go for a drive, he says. After all, the weather's beautiful. What a marvelous idea, the lady says, climbing in. Is this yours, she says, the car? Oh no, says Death. 
I took a vow of poverty. My uncle let me borrow it for the day. <laughs> ah, says the lady, very nice of him. Well on with it, Jeeves, let's go. And Death laughs and puts the car into gear, and onward the two of them roll. Death drives the lady up into the hills that stand overlooking the city. They park by a cliff and spread out a blanket and open up Death's picnic basket. They unpack a feast and lay it all out, and then they drink a toast. To you, says Death. No you, says the lady. Well then, says Death, to us both. The pair lie on the blanket and laugh and talk. Death tells the lady about his job. It's okay, he says, but sometimes I get lonely. I suppose that can't be helped, the lady says. No, says Death. He looks at the lady. No, I suppose not, he says. In the distance, the sun sinks below the horizon, and as if in answer, thunder rolls. Oh, says the lady, I think it's going to rain. Hurry, says Death, to the car. He's trying to get the top of the convertible up when the sky opens and it starts to pour. Oh, says the lady, I'm getting all wet. She holds the picnic basket over her head. You look beautiful, says Death. You look absolutely wonderful. I'm melting, I'm melting, she says. <laughs> Finally, the two of them are inside the car, soaked and safe and laughing. I have fun with you, Death says. I really like you, you know. I like you too, Death, the lady says. The lady slides a bit closer on the seat, and Death reaches out to touch her cheek. He raises her chin, and she looks into his eyes, and then they start to kiss. Lightning crashes around them. Oh, death, the lady says. I never knew that it could be like this. I love you, says death. I love you so much. Come away with me, he says. I can't, says the lady. But of course I will. If you'll just tell me, everything will be all right. It will be, says death. And the two of them hold hands, and they drive off the cliff into the night. Sylvester and the Magic Pebble by William Steed. Yeah. Okay. When I was little, well, that's like the best book of all time, number yeah. one. Um, when I was little, I just read that over and over. And so as a result, I'm obsessed with rocks, and I always write stories about people finding rocks. Anyway, here's another one of them. This is called The Rock Eater. There once was a man who ate a rock. It was a small rock, nothing big. The man found it in a field, and it was pretty, very pretty, and so he picked it up and he ate it. He wasn't in the habit of doing things like that. It surprised him as much as anyone. But there it was on that day, just lying in the field, the rock, the pretty rock, and so he ate it. The man felt great after he did it. It made him happy to have the rock inside him. And it wasn't just the physical sensation of the rock, it was also something else. Somehow the man felt the rock made him better. Somehow he felt it improved him. It gave him a lift, more self-confidence. Somehow it positively changed him. 
And the man was very, very happy about it. And then he told his wife. You did what, said his wife? You ate a rock? The man explained to her what had happened. That's insane, said his wife. You're lucky you're not dead. It was just a rock, said the man. It was hardly going to kill me. But after that, the man started to worry. He wandered around thinking about the rock. Should he not have eaten it? Could it really have done him harm? And what's more, could it really do him harm? He needed to talk to someone about it, but he was afraid his friends would laugh. So he went downtown and walked around and knocked on the door of the doctor. How big was this rock, the doctor said. The man held up his hands to indicate the size. About this big, he said, pretty small. Hmm, said the doctor and frowned. What do you mean, hmm, the man said. Is it dangerous? Well, I wouldn't say dangerous, the doctor said. It's just, you know, rocks can grow. Grow, the man said. He'd never heard of that. Grow, said the doctor, when you eat them, that is. I once saw a woman with an 80-pound boulder in her gut. He shook his head. It wasn't pretty, he said. The man stared at the doctor. So what do I do, he finally said. It should probably come out, the doctor said. Out, said the man. You mean surgery? Is that really necessary? The decision is yours, of course, said the doctor. But personally, yeah, I'd recommend it. The man went home and thought about it. He told his wife what the doctor had said. You should never have eaten that rock to begin with, she said. What did you expect? That night, the man lay thinking about the rock. He could still feel it there inside him. He could still feel its goodness radiating through him. I don't want to lose the rock, he said. Some time went by. The doctor called. I think I will keep the rock, the man said. Are you sure, said the doctor. Pretty sure, said the man. Well, said the doctor, it's your decision. If you ever change your mind, though, let me know. OK, said the man. And that was that. More time went by. The man was happy. The rock felt good inside him. But there was one thing that was bothering the man. The rock was definitely growing. The man's stomach was getting bigger all the time. It was starting to stick out. And the rock was getting heavier, too. The man was having a hard time standing up. And finally, one day, it got to the point where the man couldn't get out of bed. So what, said his wife, you're just going to lie there? I can't move, said the man. What do you want? This is all because of that dumb rock, his wife said. You should just get it cut out already. I don't want it cut out, the man said. It's my rock. It's my rock. I ate it. It makes me happy. Then the pain set in. The rock had grown so big, it was crowding out the man's innards. You have to do it now, the man's wife said. Don't you understand? You'll die if this keeps up. The man knew that his wife was right. He could feel the rock filling up his body. He could still feel its goodness in there somewhere, but it was buried now under all this pain and fear. All right, the man finally said to his wife, go get the doctor. The surgery was hard. The doctor needed four men just to lift the rock out. They placed it on a scale 
but the scale was crushed and the weight of the rock was never recorded. Otherwise, everything went according to plan. They sewed the man's stomach back up. All his organs seemed to be working okay, and the doctor had a cigar on the porch. Some time went by as the man recuperated. Then one day he woke up feeling fine. He patted his stomach and got out of bed, took a breath and walked toward the door. Where are you going, the man's wife said. For a walk, said the man. I feel great. The man went out and walked and walked. It was a nice day and he felt the breeze and saw the clouds and heard the birds and everything was absolutely wonderful. But after a while, the man started to feel different. He started to feel like something was wrong. He frowned and frowned, trying to figure it out. And then it hit him. It was the rock. The rock was gone. That was why he felt so hollow inside. There was a great big hole inside him. And the man wiped his brow and squinted and squirmed. And meanwhile, the bad feeling got worse. In a panic, the man ran. He ran to the field where he'd found the rock on that day so long ago. He looked around, all around, everywhere, everywhere, staring down, just wandering around in circles. Another rock will make me feel good again, he thought. Another rock will be just what I need. But he couldn't seem to find another rock like his, not one that looked right to him. Oh, there were lots of other rocks, of course, but they were dull and brown and covered with dirt. None of them looked like the right rock for him. He ate some anyway, but they didn't work. What am I going to do, the man said. How can I live like this? Oh, God, why? Why did I do it? Why'd I let them take my rock away? And then suddenly, out of the blue, it hit him. My rock, he said. Where is it? The man ran frantically all the way home. Where is the rock, he screamed. What rock, said his wife. The rock, screamed the man. My rock, the hell rock you think I mean? Oh, said his wife. It's out back. It was too heavy to carry very far. The man went out back. There it was, the rock, over in the corner of the yard. The man ran to it. He knelt down beside it. He wrapped his arms around the stone. He ran his hands all over its surface. He rubbed his face against it. He held it close, pressed it to his chest, but he didn't feel better at all. He opened his mouth and tried to swallow the rock, but of course it was way too big. After that, he tried to take a bite out of it but his teeth broke and his lips and gums bled. The man was crying. The rock was so close, but he just couldn't get it inside him. And he felt so empty, so hopeless, so lost. And then his wife came out of the house. Honey, said his wife, dinner is ready. And at her voice, the man became enraged. He stood up and turned and pointed at her. This is all your fault, he said. My fault? said his wife. Your fault, said the man. And he lifted the rock over his head, and he gathered his strength to hurl it at his wife. But he was too weak, and the rock fell on him, and he was dead. It's a less romantic story. <laughs> One more. This 
one is called Elmore Leonard. Everyone, everyone, everyone knows who Elmore Leonard is. Okay. <clears throat> Elmore Leonard was a famous writer, but this isn't a story about him. This is a story about my friend Elmore Leonard, who wasn't a famous writer at all. Oh, he was a writer, my friend Elmore Leonard. He just wasn't a famous one. I don't know if he was a good one either, because he never wrote anything. He tried a lot. He tried really hard. He had a fancy typewriter and everything. It was one of those ones that comes in its own suitcase, in case you ever go anyplace. Not that Elmore ever left his mom's house. He was too busy waiting for inspiration. He'd just sit there and sit there, staring at the page. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, he'd say. I remember one day I finally got up the nerve to say that maybe Elmore wasn't meant to be a writer. I mean, maybe his talents lay in other directions, but Elmore didn't want to hear about that. I just can't help but feel, Elmore said in a loud voice, that with a name like Elmore Leonard, I'm just destined to be a famous writer, and it was hard to argue with that. Elmore had a job at one of the factories, and he stayed clean and sober, so it didn't really seem like that big a deal that he wanted to be Elmore Leonard, the famous writer. After work, he'd come home and sit at the typewriter for a while, and then I'd come over and we'd drink beer. It was harmless, like how some guys play in bands on weekends, or some people always read the newspaper. But then one day, everything changed. One day, I went over to Elmore's house, and he came up to me carrying a book. Look what I wrote, he said. I looked at the book. It was an Elmore Leonard book. Rum punch, I think. Maybe Maximum Bob. This is an Elmore Leonard book, I said. Exactly, Elmore Leonard said. After that, Elmore had to go live in the hospital. <laughs> His mother was very upset. What's wrong with him, she kept asking me. He thinks he's Elmore Leonard, I'd say. <laughs> Sometimes I'd go see him and we'd sit in the visiting room. They wouldn't let him have any of his books. I remember one time he was reading Edgar Allan Poe. This guy's crazy, he said. He asked me if I could sneak him in one of his books, and I promised him that I would try. And I did, but unfortunately I was caught, and then they put me on the do not visit list. <laughs> After that, Elmore and I sort of drifted apart. Neither of us were too big on writing letters. I think Elmore might have sent me a postcard one time, but I'm not sure because there was nothing written on it. <laughs> For a while, nothing happened. Time just passed. I went to work, came home, watched TV. But one day I saw that Elmer Leonard book sitting there, the one I tried to sneak into him in the hospital. The book was on the couch where I'd thrown it that night. I don't know why, but I picked it up and started to read. I'd never really read a book before then. I mean, unless it was for school or something. And the thing of it was, the book was really good. It was funny, it made me laugh. It was about these two guys who tried to rob a bank, and then one of them got caught and put in jail. But the thing about it I liked was that the characters were good. It really seemed like they were best friends. They had fun, even when they were running from the cops, except, of course, from when the one guy was in prison. So I read the whole book, and then when I was done, I just sat there a while, staring at the cover. 
staring at that name there, my friend's name on the book, that name that had caused him so much trouble. And as I was looking at it, a thought came to me. It was a thought I'd never had before. So I got in the car and drove to Elmore's mom's house. Why'd you name him Elmore Leonard, I said. And Elmore's mom looked at me, and then finally she frowned. It was his father's idea, she said. She opened the door and motioned me inside. She pointed toward the wall with one hand. I'd been in Elmore's living room a million times before, but somehow I guess I'd never seen it. I mean, I knew the walls were lined with shelves of old books. I never noticed they were all Elmore Leonard novels. His dad sure did love those, Mrs. Leonard said. He used to sit there and read them and laugh and laugh. That is, of course, until the day he finally left. That was when Elmore was three or four, I guess. I stood there and stared at those books on the wall, and something happened. I started to cry, and Mrs. Leonard heard me and turned in surprise. Well, what's wrong with you, she said. The way she said it, it's hard to describe. It almost sounded like she was mad, mad at me, like I'd done something wrong. It's nothing, I'm sorry, I said. I excused myself and went on home. I drank a beer and tried to watch TV. But after a while, I turned it off. I went to bed, but I couldn't sleep. I just lay there in the dark thinking about Elmore and about those books on the wall, about Elmore's father sitting there reading them and laughing, and the silence that must have fell when he was gone. And then I started thinking about the characters in that book, how they were friends and stood by each other every day. And then I thought of Elmore sitting up there in the hospital, and I knew I had to get him out of that place. So that night I went out and put gas in my car, made sure everything was running fine. I went to the bank and took all my money out. Then I drove to the hospital and put the ski mask on. I went in through the roof. It wasn't really that hard. Took a crowbar to a rusted old lock. There was a guard, but I hit him with the butt of my dad's hunting rifle. Come on, Elmore, I whispered. It's time. We ran down the stairs and burst out the front doors. We were halfway to the car when the alarm started to whine. We peeled out of the parking lot, passed the first cop cars as they came, took the shortcut through the hills to Route 9. We were screaming down the highway at 110. I remember the needle going all the way off the dial. There were helicopters and searchlights. I don't know how we got away. There was just this voice in my, in my head saying, drive, drive. The sun was rising as we crossed the state line, and I started to hear this kind of noise. I looked over and saw that Elmore's mouth was moving. Pull over, he was saying. We're all right. We stopped by the side of the road and just sat there for a while. My knuckles were still white on the wheel. Thank you, Elmore said. I can't believe you did that. Let's find a gas station, though. I got to go. A few miles down the road, we pulled into a mini-mart. I grabbed a case of beer and a couple of Snickers bars. On the way up to the register, I noticed Elmore looking strange. He was standing there staring at the newspapers. I walked up beside him. He'd gone completely white. What is it? What's the matter, I said. Then I looked over his shoulder and saw that huge headline. Elmore Leonard, the famous writer, had died. Oh, 
I said. Then I looked at Elmore. But it's okay, though, I said. It isn't you. I know, Elmore said. I'm better now, you know. It's just he meant a lot to me, is all. I picked up the newspaper, and we paid for all the stuff. Then we went outside and sat in the car. We drank a few beers and ate the Snickers bars while Elmore read the obituary aloud. It was all about the life of the real Elmore Leonard, how he was born in New Orleans and grew up in Detroit, how he went to a Jesuit school and then joined the Navy, how he had almost 50 books in print. But the best part came when they talked to his friends and they told all these stories about his life. From the way they talked, you could tell they really liked him. You could tell Elmore Leonard was all right. And at the end of the article, it talked about his funeral, which was going to be the next morning at 11 o'clock. We could make it, Elmore said. I mean, we'd have to drive fast, but it's not that far, just Detroit. But Detroit, I said, that's back the way we came. We'd be crazy to go back through there. And I looked at Elmore, and he looked at me. And then we laughed, and I put the car in gear. Thanks for that, Ben. That was amazing. Um, Ben's collection is available for sale up here, as is uh, Mike's. So please come up, buy your books, have them autographed, drink plenty. Drink plenty of uh, liquids at the bar here. That's what supports the KGB bar. And we're going to take a 10-minute break. Thanks. Folks, ready to get started again. Testing one, two, three, okay. Hello, testing? Okay. I don't know. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, I'd like to introduce our second reader uh, this week, Mike Allen. Mike's first collection of short stories, Unseeming, debuted in October to starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and Library Journal. His horror tale, The Button Bin, was a Nebula Award finalist in 2009 and he's won the Risling Award for Poetry three times. He's also editor of the, of the digital journal Mythic Delirium and the critically acclaimed Clockwork Phoenix anthology series. Kickstarter backers willing, he plans to publish Clockwork Phoenix 5 in late 2015. His newest fiction project is a novel with the working title These Bloody Filaments, which he describes as, quote, Breaking Bad, written by H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mike Allen. Thank you, folks. Uh, I might have the opposite uh, problem with the others. I have a very loud voice. Is that, is that okay with everybody, what you hear? Okay, great. Um, I'm going to start with a series of excerpts from uh, from the story that lost the Nebula Award in 2009, uh, the button bin uh, about a about a really fun family situation. Uh, here we go. You know he's the one who made your beloved niece disappear. He's come out of his shop now, fussing with gloves that look expensive, a match to his long glossy overcoat. 
glare from the streetlight glints on his bare scalp. Above that light, impotent clouds wall away the moon, render the sky a blank carbon sheet. His odd little assistant left moments ago, her hose-sheathed ankle still overflowing her shoes as she waddled across the lot to her van. His car squats directly under the light, smart. Except for these first few minutes, there's no one to see him but you. Yet why would he worry? In a throwback town like this, with every house from a 1950s-era postcard, crime remains distant, alien, a single murder strange as an apocalypse. You stand from behind the trash cans with your arm held out as if you're warding off a demon, pointing the black pistol you took from your father's gun safe. You're lucky. Mr. Lenahan sees you but doesn't understand. In his moment of incomprehension, you close the distance, press the nose of the Glock against the soft underside of his chin. He's a big man, Lenahan. You're looking up into his surprised round face. Back in the store you say. He starts to speak. He wants to tell you he'll give you the money. There's no need to get rough, but something stops him. It's not the first time he's looked you in the eye. Once last week, he helped you choose a bolt of fabric for a baby blanket, covered with baseballs and bats and mitts. You told him you wanted your fiancé to make it. He responded to your tale with rote coups and congratulations. And today, an hour before closing, you asked him to help you find a replacement button for one you ripped off your shirt just for the ruse. Don't see too many men come in here more than once, he said, with a smile full of hints and questions. And he's recognized you again. His eyes move as if scanning an inner catalog. He whispers, your eyes are the same. Denise. If you could silence your own heart to listen more closely, you would. Sweat drools down his wide forehead. I can tell you where she is, he says. You say, I know you can. We can talk down here, Lenahan says. Just let me get the lights. I see you in the dark just fine. Keep the lights off. Well, how about this one? Just a desk lamp. No one outside will see it. Go ahead, then. The lamp's slender fluorescent tubes do little to penetrate the gloom in the basement warehouse, a space much bigger than you expected from outside. Lenahan's shop used to be a schoolhouse, still has the look of a relic from a lost time. The street it fronts has surrendered to modern clutter, telephone poles and squawky burger drive throughs even the schoolhouse's Rockwell-esque bell tower still points benignly at the sky, though the bell's long gone. The former school houses a fabric and craft store, one with a subtle reputation for eclectic and exotic selections that stretches for hundreds of miles outside the tiny dollop of a town where it nestles. Every room brims with bolts of fabric, regimented in racks or piled in bins, from burlap plain to prismatic textures and labyrinthine patterns that dizzy the eye. In at least two former classrooms, long glass cases stand sentry, crowded with glittering baubles, costume jewelry. In the cavernous basement, 
Tall steel shelves hold rows of thick fabric meant for towels, sheets, blankets, even tents. So many rugs hang from overhead racks, dens spanning designs of tigers, elephants, dragons, griffins, Egyptian gods, and even wilder beasts that they would make for maze-like layers of concealment if your quarry tried to run and you pursued, but he doesn't try to get away, even though he must know this place by heart, even in the dark. In fact, he acts as if he's invited you in, he sits down at the desk where the lamp shines. It's, it's more of a drawing table, tilted up, scattered with catalogs and pattern books, the kind that show a smiling woman strutting in an outfit she supposedly sewn herself. He settles a hand down next to a small red cushion bristling with needles and pins. With his other hand, he gestures at a folding chair at the corner of the table going through motions he's long accustomed to. Have a seat here. Let's look this over. Beside the desk in your chair is a long coffin-like box. You study it, wonder what's in it, why he wants you to sit next to it. A long wooden chest of some dark wood with what appear to be elaborate Polynesian designs carved on its side you see a horde of faces peering out through a thicket of strange trees, their gaze aimed to the right, where a large figure is stepping out from a Yoni-esque opening in a wall of reeds. The lid of the chest is open, perhaps even removed. Inside, small objects glitter like treasure in a pirate movie. You peer more closely. The chest is filled to the brim with buttons of just about every kind you think could exist every conceivable size and color, sky blue, gold, oak brown, blood red, sea green, India ink, rose pink, oil swirls, crystal prisms, basalt opaque. Some like grains, some larger than silver dollars, discs, cubes, knobs, triangles and stars, even crosses, moons, little grinning skulls, twining oriental dragons, snarling demon heads. The entire conglomeration shimmers as if the weak glow from the lamp transmutes to moonlight across their many surfaces. Lenahan says, it's amazing what you can find in there, still amazes me. You realize your attention wandered. You aim your focus and your Glock back where they belong. Where is she? He leans forward, his shadowed bulk alarming his face a gibbous moon. I just gave you a hint. You blink. His eyes have changed. You could swear when you looked at them before they were dark, not that eerie bright green. You emphasize the command with a wave of your pistol. Don't move. Don't do anything other than tell me where she is. Then what? You inhale slowly. You tell yourself, it's not your plan to kill him. You just have to know. You say, depends on what you tell me. He sits still, but his fingers on the desk twitch spider-like, drum softly in some random Morse code. He leans back a little, face going from gibbous to full, and you see his eyes are different, unquestionably burning bright green, like seeing your own eyes in a mirror. 
He's playing games, not taking you serious. The little cushion full of pins trembles as his fingers drum. You shoot it. The glock hiccups in your hand, the sound like a sledgehammer smashing concrete. The cushion is simply gone, a long second before Lenahan jerks his hand away. The moment punctuates with the clatter of the spent shell casing on the floor. Lenahan holds up his hand, stares, his sensuous lips parted. There's a needle jutting from the tip of his ring finger. His expression makes you squirm inside. He puts finger to mouth, grips the needle in his teeth, and pulls. It protrudes from his incisors like a toothpick, then he tosses it away. He doesn't seem frightened, but your heart is pounding crazy against its cell of ribs. Under the lamp, a bead of blood wells from his fingertip. I don't want to make trouble for you, he says. A flick, the blood is gone. Why does the skin of his broad hand seem smoother, paler, the hairs between the knuckles somehow absent, reverse werewolf? Stop moving, you say. He obeys, watches, and waits. You still haven't answered, you say. Answered what? You scream an obscenity, put the gun almost to his chin. His eyes flick to the button bin. Just as with his eyes and hands, the buttons in the bin have changed. It's hard to quantify what's different, but you hit upon it. They look more real, more like the things they represent. The sea-blue discs look like circles of ocean. The skulls gleam like real bone. The laughing demons seem to wink. The moons and suns shine with their own light. The faces on the fake coins frown or grin or simply breathe. He knows your name. Sean, he says. You reach in there, you'll find her. You'll know what happened. You aim the Glock in his face and say, you do it. It took weeks of brooding, planning, stalking to reach the place you now sit. He leans toward the button bin, the muzzle of your gun almost kissing the meaty curve of his ear. His arm disappears to the elbow, and he shudders like he's plunged it in ice. You don't hear the noise you expect, the clattering hiss of beads displaced. Instead, a quiet wind chime jostle, a patter of hourglass sand, a release of air like a lover's soft exhalation. Lenahan pauses. I'm not going to try anything, he says. Could you please pull that out of my ear? Move slowly, you say, but you back off a little. His arm comes out slowly, as if he's having to extract it from tar, and in fact, the buttons seem to stick to it. There's a squelching noise as his hand comes free. Whatever you're doing, stop it. Just be calm, son. He holds his hand up in front of his face, looks at his knuckles, looks at you between his fingers. Some of the buttons have adhered to his skin. There's a cat's eye centered in the palm of his hand, 
gold suns in the crooks of his knuckles, blood drops around his wrists, black diamonds tracking in rows down his forearm, alternating with bone circlets. You realize the buttons have arranged themselves in deliberate patterns. It's as if they lined up along invisible seams in his skin. Your heart is a madman pounding at the walls. You aim at one of his bright green eyes, just like yours, like Denise's. You'll never know the answer if you shoot me. His palm still toward you, he takes his other hand, grips a demon face button centered in his wrist, just below the ball of the thumb. Then he pushes it through his skin and out again, undoes the button as if loosening a collar. A vertical seam in his wrist suddenly gapes like a new eye opening. What you should see through that opening is blood and meat and tendons, but instead there's something in there that wavers like heat shimmer, flutters like a moth, shines without color, and a scent wafts out of sadness and silence. It confounds your gaze and makes your stomach lurch. Stop it, you say, but he's unbuttoning his wrist, the skin parting like a cuff, something pale and gleaming and alive revealed underneath. The entire room has become strange, still dark, but the darkness somehow agitated, animate. He says, do you see her yet? His face contorts, his neck bulges, and suddenly you think of Apenex Sweeney, Elliot's mindless brute, zebra stripes swelling along his jaw. Beside you, the buttons in the bin crawl over each other, glittering mites that seethe at the lip of their container like spectators crawling a crowding a Colosseum wall. Lenahan's arm gapes to the elbow. He flexes the meat of his contorted forearm. This is not easy, he grunts, and something bulges through the gap in the curtain of his flesh. It's a face pushed out as if birthed. Denise's face. Her pink lips parted as if in hesitation before asking a question. Squeezed out from between his unbuttoned skin, her face bows, an empty mask, eye holes dark. Eyeless, because the eyes regarding you from Lenahan's sweat-sheened face are not just like her eyes, they are her eyes. Her mouth is moving, a fish drawing in water. He raises his arm, brings her lips to yours. And if you want to know the rest, you have to read the book. I have one more piece. It's a much shorter, much shorter than the button bin, and I'm going to read it in its entirety. Uh, this is called, this is also in my collection, Unseeming. This is called An Invitation Via Email. From Giles Milko to Miranda Statzler. Subject, excellent piece in the critic. Hello, Miss Statzler. Giles Milko here. Hopefully you remember me from the conversation we had last Thursday at the After Hours faculty party. 
I have to say I really enjoyed your essay in the newest Fairly Critic on the subjective nature of fear. I'm very much in agreement with your contention that the most extreme phobia or paranoia, no matter how crippling, can be overcome through the gradual building up of confidence. I must say that aside from being informative, I found your piece also to be quite entertaining, especially the self-deprecating wit you used in describing your efforts through therapy to overcome your fear of spiders. In my head, I could hear the mental squeals of horror as Dr. Cheryl placed the tarantula in your hand, then feel the overwhelming burst of triumph as you set the spider gently on the table and realized, I did it! I did it! Some of the asides in your article made me realize, gods, I can be so dense sometimes, that when you spoke of concerns about arcane rites in response to the invite to my Halloween party the next evening, that you possibly weren't kidding and perhaps had some genuine anxieties. I really should stress that my wife and I had planned for the Halloween party to be occult-free. No spirits other than the liquid sort. I realize I gained a facetious reputation among students over the years, usually for little more than addressing poor Guardino Bruno's attempt to understand the world through sorcery in a history of science class. I must say, though, Bruno did have a knack for concocting ominous-looking magical symbols it's no wonder the church made kindling out of him. Obviously, some such rumor reached you long before our first encounter in the flesh. So as soon as I finished your essay, I felt compelled to write you and set things to rights. The thaumaturgical ceremonies conducted in my home are not fearful black-robed affairs reserved for special nights. They're actually very casual things held Sunday mornings or the occasional Saturday if somebody wants to see a football game instead. They're not geared toward any more sinister a purpose than furthering the careers of the participants. I, for one, need the boost. Consider that I teach nine credits a week, write a column for the town paper, and complete a new book every two years. Uh, do you really think I could do all that without outside help? A few faculty members take part, as well as one freelance writer from town who needs to combat his day job brain drain. Sometimes writers or artists from out of town make guest appearances. It's all quite open and friendly. Uh, no one dresses up. T-shirts and sweats, in fact, are perfectly acceptable attire. Of course, there has to be a sacrifice. Our ideal choice is one of those horribly misguided individuals, sadly, almost always a parent, who goes to the school board wanting to ban this book or that book or goes whining to town council to cancel Halloween as a satanic holiday. Unfortunately for the world, but good for us, there seems to be no shortage of them. <laughs> Though we've done our best, I swear. And if we can't get our hands on an adult, one of their children will do the trick these sorts of genes don't need to spread. <laughs> the sacrifice doesn't need to be conscious, but he or she does need to be alive so that each of us can take a small bite of their still-beating heart. <laughs> Making the proper cuts to remove a heart this way is frankly rather tricky, though we've all gotten well-practiced. Of course, we have to pass a chalice around, a coffee cup will do, really, for that token chaser of blood. Then we summon the outer dimensional persona, 
Uh, that's the politically correct term these entities seem to prefer nowadays. <laughs> now, at this point, you might experience some of that anxiety you discussed in your essay, but there's no need to worry. We've drawn the right symbols and circles so that the persona, our favorite, is a fellow with a pleasantly dry wit named Mephisto, can't do anything other than talk. Once we see his, it's, gender's never clear with these things, disembodied head hovering over the remains of the sacrifice, we pepper him with questions about the status of his labors with regards to our projects. In the ears of which editors or agents has he whispered? What bargains has he struck? Did he give an appropriate nightmare to the woman who wrote that rude rejection? <laughs> Etc. After we get our update, he heads back to New York. <laughs> really, that's it. He it, takes most of the sacrifice for sustenance until next weekend. We knock on my study door so my wife knows we're done, and she'll usually bring in something like sweet rolls and hot chocolate, so we dig into those while we sit around talking shop. What's left over of the sacrifice we give to the new puppies, who love their weekend meal. It's usually cooked a bit as a result of the persona's presence. Of course, the cat doesn't want to be left out, but her teeth have gone bad, so she just gets a little saucer of blood. You're probably wondering why the authorities have never barged in on us. Well, as a condition of this arrangement, Mephisto, or whichever persona we happen to dial up, erases the memory of the sacrifice from the minds of everyone who ever knew them, except for us. So if no one remembers their existence, no one misses them. And if we've managed to improve the gene pool attack in the process, that's great. Of course, if there's a lot of physical evidence left behind, like, say, uh, wedding albums or newspaper articles, the entity will have to work a bit harder to make sure everyone's curiosity is sufficiently dulled. But overall, it's a very efficient system. I'm not sure how close a lot of us have gotten to achieving our ultimate goals, but these weekend get-togethers do seem to help. You're certainly welcome to come by this weekend, or, or any weekend of your choosing, there's no hurry, and join us. Perhaps we could help you to produce more wonderful essays like the one I just read. Or maybe there are some solidly grounded fears, I hear rumors of a troublesome ex-husband, that we can help put to rest for good. I hope all of this helps to reassure you, your obedient servant, Milka. From Giles Milka to science faculty at fairly.edu, English faculty at fairly.edu, legati at morbid.net. Subject, apology to all. My sincerest apologies. Miss Statzler seemed like an intelligent, inquisitive woman who would understand the benefits of our arrangement. How could I have predicted she would interpret my explanatory email as a joke? Henceforth, I promise to be more careful when screening new members. I'm still not precisely a master of this new email system. So if you receive this message in error and have not a clue to whom I'm referring, well, just take comfort that things are exactly as they should be. <laughs> All best, Milko, smiley face.
Thank you. Thank you very much. There's more liquor, drinks. There, <clears throat> there are more books to be signed to you. And um, come back next month. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.